Our Father, we're grateful that you have brought us together again today to worship you. Thank you for drawing us by your grace, and thank you for the good word that we've heard. I pray now that as we press on in these these books, these uh, minor prophets, that you will give our hearts and minds understanding that we may see you as you have revealed yourself and walk in that way, Lord. And Lord, as I teach this morning and as my friends here come to listen, I pray that you will, by your spirit and by your own grace, Lord, allow your word to come alive to us this morning. And we know, Father, that if that happens today, that we'll have no one to thank but you. And we are grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hello again. We have one more week together in this uh, big aerial view of the Minor Prophets or tracing some themes in the Minor Prophets. Um, highly selective and subjective according to your teacher, unfortunately, so I'm just sort of choosing and moving forward. Um, last week, we spent some time looking at, the, um, looking at the matter of repentance, a key word that we see within the Minor Prophets. You have these strong words of judgment, these injunctions that come against the people of God, and then the challenges to return, uh, to shuv, right, to turn back to the Lord. I've been thinking about this um, a little bit as well during the week. It's something, isn't it, that within the minor prophets, really within the prophetic corpus as a whole, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and, and the twelve, these minor prophets, that we see the prophets again and again pressing against our tendency um, to compartmentalize our faith. That they press against that. I mean, there's a, I think there's a tendency that we all have to, to sort of compartmentalize our lives. Uh, let, me, let me put this in, in different terms. Um, for example, we think, I'll give this little bit of myself. I, I mean, I have seven days of the week. The first day of the week, that's God's. Well, I'll give that to Him. And here we all are, right? So we come, we worship together. Um, but then when I, you know, my Monday to my Saturday, that's kind of, that's, that's my world, you know, in a way. Or... I'll give this little portion here, but this part here, I, you know, I compartmentalize off. That's, that's mine, or this is my area. And so we tend to sequester life. And the prophets won't allow that. You know, God, God won't allow that. He comes in with a certain kind of totalizing force, doesn't He? And He says, I don't, I don't want just a little bit here or there. I don't want your little religious you know, this or that. This, I, what I want is I, I, I want everything. So the presses against this compartmentalization that it's a recognition that yes, Jesus is Savior, but He's also Lord. And that, that takes into account the fact that He is Lord, He's King over everything in our lives. Everything. Uh, so it's, you, you think about this from a weekly standpoint. It's not just Sunday. It's how do, how do we think about Monday to Saturday? And how, is, how is Jesus Lord over all of that? And this, I think, begins to get us and push us to reflect that the church, the people of God, are their own culture. We have our own culture. And there's a certain kind of language. There's a certain kind of relating. There's a certain mode of being that is pressed on us, that is stamped in its totality by, by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, think about this in the day-to-day affairs of our living. Um, the, our, our mode of being is a mode of being that recognizes that Jesus is Lord, 
that He is Savior, and that influences, that affects the way in which we relate to one another. Christians have a certain kind of, a certain way of relating to one another, a certain way of romancing each other, right? A certain way of living in marital relationships with one another, a certain way of thinking about our children that has it, that is stamped by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I feel the pressure of this as a parent in, in multiple ways, and I'm sure many of you do as well, whatever station of life you're in on this parenting journey. Um, my mother uh, tells me always, I know you're 36, but a mom never stops being a mom. I mean, there's something to that, right? Um, and so we have this sort of parenting thing as well where you think about what the culture around us values in our children. And by the way, these aren't necessarily bad things. I mean, I, I value them too. But what do we push forward as the key things that we want out of our children? Well, they need to be successful academically. We really want them to be successful socially. And we like for them to be successful uh, athletically, right? I mean, at least, or, and, if, and if you're batting two out of three, that's great, right? Um, so we've, we've pressed these things, on, and, and it, they become a sort of an all-encompassing way in which we view what it looks like to be successful with our kids. And all those things, again, aren't necessarily bad, but it challenges us, doesn't it, to realize how little the Bible actually talks about those three, and spe- especially the last one. Right. Um, so the, these, these, are, these are real live issues, I think, that we have to, we have to think about, become reflective on. Um, Micah 6.8 is a, is a bumper sticker verse within the Minor Prophets, isn't it? That He has shown you what God wants from you. To, to love justice, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Um, I, I like to rephrase that last statement, to walk humbly with our God. I don't think it's the best rendering of that. I think what we have there really is to walk circumspectly, to walk reflectively, to walk thoughtfully in light of the character of our God, in light of who He is and what the demands are that He, that he places on us and His goodness and His grace. Right. I mean, this is, I think, again, what the minor prophets do to us in this challenging, this, un, this, this unsettling of our tendency to compartmentalize faith. I have my faith department here. I have my politics department here. I have my business department here. I have my family compartment over here. And nary shall the four meet one another. Right? I give them all their due, but they stay in their little slots. And I do that part, and I leave that there on the shelf. And then when I pull the other book off, I'm dealing with that area. And what I think the minor prophets and, frankly, the gospel as a whole forces us again and again to recognize this, that's, that's just not going to do. We need to walk reflective with our God and to see how the lens, the eyeballs that are given to us with faith, how that allows us to see all of these things and to incorporate them in that, in that, particular, in that particular way. Listen to this. I'm not doing Amos this morning, but I wanted you to hear this today to give you a sense of this leaning against um, this compartmentalization. Verse 21 of Amos chapter 5. <laughs> Brace yourself here. This is not one of those thanks be to God moments in the liturgy. Um, I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
and the offerings of well of well being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Here's a hard word. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I'm not going to listen to the melody of your harps. Boy, you can almost hear Martin Luther King Jr. right now. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I mean, did you hear this? I think a good way of phrasing what's going on here is a call to the ethical reflection on liturgy. What are the ethics of liturgy? Um, our authentic liturgy within the minor prophets is, is a liturgy that forces us out again, right? Into to lives that are lived, walking humbly with God, walking reflectively with God, that are characterized by thoughtfulness with regard to justice and righteousness. To looking at those around us and seeing that the gospel has something to do with our relationships and those who, who, are, who are oppressed and those who are needy. There's a, there's a fourfold presentation of these folks all throughout the Old Testament. The widow, the orphan, um, the alien sojourner in the land, and, and the poor, the despised, who will always be with you. And I noticed that today, in our lit- the liturgy itself, in morning prayer and, and even in the Eucharistic rite, forces this on us. Let us, let us continue to remember the poor. You, some of you have these things memorized better than I do. And may the hope of the poor not be taken away. It's built in there, isn't it? And then what's the final words that we heard? Right when we stood up, we know we're grabbing our purses and our Bibles, get ready to leave. But what's the final thing that we hear? We hear, um, go forth in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks. Right. I mean, there's that challenge. That, that, I think, is at the heart. It's built into the very fabric of what we say week in and week out in our corporate worship together, in our, in our liturgical life, that the authenticity of what we've just engaged in is in some sense measured biblically by how we're forced out into the world in this missional kind of movement, this, this centrifugal kind of pressure that moves us beyond our gathering together out into the world to go once again into the world with the lens, with lenses, with glasses, with retinae that are, that are formed and shaped by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same kind of thing that we see in Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. We all know Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, a man, what is good. But the verses that come before that, I think, are very fascinating in Micah chapter 6. What the prophet does is he reminds them of, the, of, of, their, um, of their bondage in Egypt. And that Yahweh moved toward you in, in, in mercy and in grace. He chose you to be His own. And, and he raises this very pointed question, What have I done to weary you? How have I burdened you that you've gone off philandering with other gods and seeking military alliances with people other than me when your trust should be totally in me? At what point did I weary you? I think I've told some of you this before in different contexts, but I, I think about this with, you know, with my two boys. You know, I, I ask them these kind of questions regularly you know, when, they, when they complain. Right? Um, but you have this kind of, this kind of question that, it goes on, you know, uh, how, you know we're, we're at the zoo or we're at whatever. I think I mentioned this in a class I was doing at Beeson on Tuesday night. But, you know, we're at, you're at the McQueen Center or, um, you know, I didn't want pink cotton candy. I wanted blue cotton candy. It's like, so at what point exactly have we wearied you, right? Um, you know, <laughs> um, you know my, my, I, I, I made a mistake. It was a bad mistake, um, I played, a, I played a game. My, my, my oldest son has a steel trap memory when it comes to something that he's owed. And, um, 
It's amazing the other things he can forget so quickly. But when he's owed something, he's got a seal trap memory. We were watching the Yankees and the, um, and the Orioles a couple weeks ago. He and I were watching this game on the ground, and they showed a view of New York. And I thought I'd, stupid dad moment, I thought I'd play when I said, William, I'll bet you $5 that you can't name that river that you see right there. No, I said, I bet you $10 you can't name that river. And, uh, and I said, okay, well, how about this? I'll give $5 and I'll give you, I'll give you five choices from which to choose. And I said, he, said, he said, okay. So I said, is it the Chesapeake? Is it the Hudson? It's the Hudson, Dad. It's the Hudson. I know it's the Hudson. And then I was out five bucks. I just never thought he would have known it. So he hasn't forgotten this, you know, this, this money, this money that he's owed. And, and yesterday he was, he was talking about this. And, and I said, William, you know, I'll, we'll, we'll make sure that we, we get you square on this. But I do, I do want you to, to know, son, you haven't seen a rent check yet. Just want to remind you of that. Um, you know, or there's, there's, there hasn't been a meal that you've missed yet. Uh, because you haven't been paying your proper due. It's, it's, that kind of, it's that kind of language that I think we find in Micah where God in a vulnerable parenting relational moment says, at what point have I wearied you that you've gone off doing what you've done? He leads with His grace. See, that's, again, that's what I, why we need worship together every week. To be reminded of His grace. That, that we're sinners who are in need. And that in our sin, Romans 5.8, Christ died for us, that He moved toward us, not when we moved toward Him, but when He moved toward us, the Father ran off the porch while the Son was still lingering at the edge of town. The Father runs off the porch and He buries His Son with kisses and with affection. And then the Son begins His, his speech. Right. The speech didn't lead to the Father running. It was, it was the Father saw Him and ran toward the Son in, in a kind of act that a Middle Eastern father would never do. Would never sort of lift up his, his robe and run. That, that's, that's an act of shame. He wouldn't do that. But here's the father running. And, and, and this is the language again of the minor prophets. The father has run toward you. Yahweh's run toward you in this love. Why then do you go off in these other ways? I don't, I don't want your religious expressions, your noise, your, your singing is like noise to me when it's not reflective about the kind of lordship that Jesus has over all of our lives. It's a challenge, I think, for us to move out to that. So all this kind of stuff, I think, within the Minor Prophets, makes Jonah so fascinating. And that's what I want to talk a little bit about this morning, Jonah. So here's Jonah. We have this ethics of liturgy. We have this call to think about justice, about God's care. for the Remember the big four? Who are the people that are really in need of justice? The alien sojourner, the widow, the orphan, the poor, but the, the alien sojourner, right? The foreigners are, are part, part of God's concern here. So there's this ethic of liturgy that, that then we have Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. I'm just going to read a little bit of this this morning. and I'm making no promises about time for questions today, but we'll, we'll, um, we'll see. Uh, now the word of the Lord uh, came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for the wickedness has come up before me. And what happens in verse 3 of the prophets is unlike anything we've seen anywhere else. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, all the way through Malachi. It's, it's unlike anything that we've seen because this is the powerful effect of God's Word and God's call on His prophetic figures. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, go down to the house of the potter and see what I'm doing. Next verse. And Jeremiah went down to the house of the potter. 
For Jeremiah chapter 1. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and said, I'm setting you apart when you're in your mother's womb. I set you apart to be a prophet for me to the nations. Jeremiah said, I'm not really up to the task. I'm a young person. God said, don't say you're a young person. You're going to do what I say. And the, and the rest of the book of Jeremiah is Jeremiah doing exactly what God tells him to do. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees the Lord lifted up. Who's going to go? I'll go for you, Lord. And then he says, well, it's going to not be very fun, but yes, you're going to go do it. And Isaiah says, how long? Until it's all uh, destroyed down to the tenth of them. And then Isaiah goes and he, and he does it. I mean, that's the kind of language that we have. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a sense in which um, there, there's a constraint on the minister of God's Word within the prophets. There, there, there's something that seizes them and they cannot get away from it. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the great preachers in London, Baptist preachers, some of you may have know, know his Treasury of David, his classic uh, exposition on the Psalms. But Charles Haddon Spurgeon was famous for telling his pre- school of preachers that he had at his church, um, if you can do something else, do it. Right. Um, but, the, but the preacher who's been set aside, um, there, there's something that's shut up in his or her bones. They, they can't do anything other than that. They're, they're, they're slayed hold of, they're seized. That, that, that's exactly what we find in the prophets. Um, and a lot of, by the way, the great men and women of the faith have, have kind of rejected that. At first. They, 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 they hid from him. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest American theologian we've known, although if you ask a British person who's done work on Jonathan Edwards, they'll say Edwards did his ministry before the Revolutionary War, so he's England's greatest. I mean, you'll, I've heard that before. No, but we'll, we'll, we'll claim him. Ed, Edwards uh, was one of America's greatest theologians. I've been a brilliant, capacious mind, you know, writing treatises on spiders as like an eight- and nine-year-old. I mean, this is an unusual brain. Um, but when he, he had his, his degree, he had his theology degree, and he resisted a call to parish ministry because he just didn't feel like he was ready for it yet and resisted it. Apparently, John Knox wept for weeks when he was told that he was going to be a parish minister. I mean, there's a certain kind of force that comes on because of the gravity of it, and, and that's the kind of thing I think you find in a call to, to, um, to prophetic uh, ministry of the Word, but not Jonah. He is completely unlike any of the other things we've seen. Verse 3, but Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish. And just so you know where Tarshish is, because we don't really know where it is, the prophet says here, from the presence of the Lord. Right? Um, I, have a bo- I don't know if you're going to be able to see this or not. Um, can, is that even, can you even see that? Well, it's not. Hold on. Um, so uh, here's a, I've done this for a class at, uh, oh, I did that wrong. This isn't to scale. Um, all right, um. So that's the Middle East, right? Um, and uh, I've told my, my lay academy class that I'm teaching at Beeson that I've got I've got copyright on a patent on this, so <laughs> don't. Um, so here you have uh, the northern kingdom, you have the southern kingdom, Samaria, capital up here, uh, Jerusalem's about right here, and then you have, this is the Mediterranean Sea, that's the Nile River and Sinai, if you were wondering what those were. Um, and, uh, and so Jonah says that he's, he goes down to Joppa, which is on the coast, to get a ship that's going to, um, well, Tarshish. Now... Uh, we're not completely sure where Tarshish is, but 
Um, there's, a, I think, a solid guess that it might be modern-day Spain. Um, let's just say that maybe that is the case, that it's modern-day Spain. You know this, don't you, from an ancient Near Eastern perspective. Um, you know, they, 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 they viewed the world as flat, right? So once you get beyond Spain, out into that ocean out there, what's, where, where are you going? Off, right? So in, in other words, I mean, I think another way of putting this within the story, this great story of Jonah that has humor in it, it's funny. I think another way of putting this is Jonah was going to the, to the other end of the world. I mean, he's going as far as he could go. I mean, if you go any further than Tarshish, you're you know, falling off somewhere. Um, and there he goes. But he's going from the presence of the Lord. Right? So it's, in some sense, his destination is not all that, big of, that, all that important. It's what he's running from that's important. He's running from the presence of the Lord. Now, I, I, I used to have a, a sense, you know, I, I think a rather... And again, I, I've mentioned this to some of you, but... Um, you know, I, when, when I was a teenager in church, I used, I used to roll my eyes in, in a very arrogant way, Lord, forgive me, um, when, when people would get up and pray and they would say, Lord, be with us today, right? And I would sort of huff under my breath, well, I guess they don't have a very robust doctrine of the omnipresence of God, do they? We, we don't really need to ask God to be with us today. He, he is here. We don't need to ask. He is here, right? Well, that's partly true. Right, because Jonah's going to come face to face with the omnipresence of Yahweh. We're going to find that out, right? But there is a sense as well in which God's presence was specially located here in Jerusalem at the temple. And we're going to see a lot of this temple theology that shows up in the book of Jonah. But the temple is a sacramental, physical um, manifestation of God's presence among His people. Set up on a hill. It's the Garden of Eden surrounded by the death and reality of the world. This is where God dwells with His people. I mean, the temple is a special place where God is especially present. Is God everywhere? Yes, God is everywhere. But there's also a reality that God is especially present at the temple. In other words, Jonah's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. His getting out of Jerusalem, his getting away from the temple, wasn't bad theology. There was something actually that he was on to. The further removed I can get from here, you think about this kind of in concentric circles, the further I can get away from Jerusalem and the temple, the further I can get away from the constraining word of the Lord on me. Right, I can get away from that. And by the way, that, that temple theology, I think, is something that we can really think carefully and rightly about as we think about the church. You know, the community that comes together to worship. Is God present everywhere? Yes, yes. Is God present when you're alone in your prayer closet having alone time with Jesus? Yes, He is, right? And that can be very special. But there's a dynamic at play when the community comes together to pray and to worship that is unlike anything else. Unlike anything else. That God draws us together. What did Jesus say? Where two or three are gathered in My name, there I am in the midst. There's something about the collective people of God coming together that, that actually is, um, is very special. Right? His, his, let's put it this way. His presence is especially present in those kind of moments. And Jonah is fleeing Dodge to get away from the presence of the Lord. He's heading to Tarshish, and he's going to find out the hard way it's not going to go well. So the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Don't you love this story? I, just, I love this story. 
Um, I can remember, uh, well, we'll see this thing. Uh, great wind upon the sea, mighty storm came on the sea, the ship threatened to break up. I mean, this gives you a sense of the kind of um, storied character of this, right? The ship threatened to break up. It, it, it's a, it's, it literally reads this way, if I can do this with you, and I'm, 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 I'm loath to do this typically, but it's the ship thought that it was going to break apart. And that's personifying this ship. So even the ship is out there on the sea, rocking up and down, thinking to itself, this isn't going real well. And then uh, the mariners were afraid. And each cried to his God. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it from them. But Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and had laid down. He was fast asleep. This captain came to him and he said, What are you doing here, O sleeper? Get up. Call on your God. So what do we have here happening in Jonah 1? We have these mariners, these pious mariners, these pious seamen, who in their crisis, in their foxhole, are calling out each one to their God, their polytheist, as we would expect from the ancient Mediterranean culture, from the Mesopotamian culture. They're calling out to their various gods. So Jonah, whoever your God is, happens to be, you might want to call out to him too. So then they came together and they said, this isn't working. Let's cast some lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. I can't say that I'm thrilled about this. It's probably not the best way to make church decisions. But Proverbs says, the casting of the dice is in the hand of the Lord. And they throw the dice and lo and behold, it lands on Jonah. I don't know if they did two out of three, but it falls on Jonah. And so they, they unleash on Jonah a barrage of questions. Tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What, what people are? Do you hear that? I mean, boom, boom, boom. Five questions like a machine gun. I mean, it gives you a sense of the urgency of the moment. They're sinking. This is over. We need to know what's going on. And he said, I'm a Hebrew and I worship Yahweh. Now, notice how he describes Yahweh. They don't know who this Yahweh is. I worship Yahweh, the God of heaven, uh-oh, who made the sea and the dry land. I mean, do you feel the force of that here in this context, right? In other words, um, the place that's giving you a lot of trouble right now, the sea, he made that. And, and the place that you're trying to get to, that you really would like to be right now, and you can't, he made that too. And they were immediately afraid because they knew, and I don't know, this is an interesting little piece of information here. They knew that he had been fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them that. So then they said to him, well, tell us, what shall we do to you that the sea may quieten down? But the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, well, pick me up and throw me in. And these men, again, are pious. They don't want to be guilty of innocent blood. So what do they do? Their initial response to the prophetic word of the Lord from Jonah is, row harder. Right. They begin to row. But the land seems to keep getting further and further away. It's not working. And so they pray a prayer. And they ask that they not be held accountable. But verse 14, I want you to notice something. Because the whole time, they have been crying out to their, their Elohim. Their little g gods. That's who they've been crying out to. They've now just had a prophetic revelation from Jonah. And Jonah has told them who his God is. It's Yahweh, the one who made the heavens 
the one who made the sea, the one who made the dry land. And look who they pray to now in verse 14. Then they cried out to Yahweh. That's significant, I think. Not to their Elohim anymore. They're crying out to Yahweh. Please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood. For you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. And they picked up Jonah, they threw him overboard, and listen to what happens. The sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared Yahweh even more. They reverenced Him. They worshipped Him. They confessed and recognized the reality and the truth of who Yahweh is. And look what they do. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord. And they made vows. Now this causes interpreters fits. Because you make vows and you bring sacrifices back at the temple. Right? I mean, what does this mean? Do they go back and do it? We don't know. The story is rather terse. It's, it's rather um, shotgunish in the way in which it comes at us. So we, we don't, I don't think we can answer those kinds of questions. And I don't think the story forces us to ask, answer those kinds of questions. I think the story in the form that it comes to us lets us know that these pagan sailors, these Elohim worshipers, these polytheists, by the end of the chapter have recognized that Jonah's God is who He is and they've turned their attention, their devotion, their worship, their sacrificing their vows completely on Him. It's God turning His grace to the nations. It's a little bit of a... Of a storied narrative illustration of what Micah 4 says in the next book when it says, in the final day, the mountain of the Lord will be established and all the nations of the earth will come streaming to that mountain to be taught Torah, to be taught the law from God Himself. And the result of that will be universal peace. Here are these pagan sailors who are now Yahweh worshipers by the end of the chapter while Jonah is continuing to give the Heisman uh, to the Lord his God. But what happens... He gets thrown out. This gets fun. Large fish swallowed up Jonah, and he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now I've got these. I remember these um, little kids' books that I used to have as a boy. You know, with the Jonah stuff and a little picture of Jonah sitting in the belly of the whale, and had this little table, <laughs> little lamp, and writing a few letters. You know, There's, they put a little seaweed in there just to make it a little authentic. But yeah, it's, this is not the case, right? I mean, Jonah. It's in the belly of this fish. We don't know all that's going on here, but it's it's it can't be fun. And Jonah did in chapter two what um, what you what you would do too, I imagine, if you found yourself um, in the belly of Jaws. <laughs> uh, he he prays, and this is what he prays. I called to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me. I called to him out of the belly of Sheol, and you heard my voice. Uh, Sheol, uh, the place of the dead, the nether region. Um, People I don't think go there who are blessed in the Lord. It's not a happy place. We tend to think in our Western mindsets with with a strong and sharp line between life and death. You're alive, and when your heart stops or your brain stops, then you're dead, right? That's not really the way in which the Bible conceives of life and death. It's actually a little bit more of a blurry, blurred line between life and death so that people can be living yet still be in Sheol. 
You see this in the Psalms all the time, don't you? I'm calling to you from the pit. You, you rescued me from the miry clay. I was in Sheol and you heard my voice. This is that kind of psalm language that I'm in living death. I'm out of the realm of your blessing and your presence. I feel cut off from the land of the living. Bankruptcy, disease, um, depression. These are all the kind of things that we find in the Bible that, that really can be referred to as living Sheol. And this is what he's calling to, he's calling to the Lord from, from Sheol. You cast me into the deep, the heart of the sea that floats around me, all your waves and your billows, they passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? Is it, you, know, you find out a lot about a person when, they, when they're dying and what they say when they're dying. And here's, here's Jonah on his way down. And his final kind of words are, I really... I really want to see your temple again. Isn't that interesting? The place that I'm running from, that I ran from, because I didn't want your word on me anymore. I'm in my dying breath. It's like, how am I ever going to see it again? How am I ever going to be in that specialized place of your of your presence? I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. You brought my life up from the pit, O Lord, my God. But as my life was ebbing away, and here's a covenantal term. I remembered Yahweh. My prayer came to you, again, into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. I will vow, what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation, deliverance belongs to the Lord. And then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it threw Jonah out. So in his distress, in his moment of Sheol, that he had brought upon himself. He turns his attention to the Lord and remembers that salvation, that deliverance, that Yeshua, right? That's the term here, belongs to the Lord himself. He's the one who gives it. He's the one who dispenses with it. And he dispenses with it freely. Like he did to the sailors and like he's going to do to the Ninevites. He dispenses with it freely. And then we come to chapter 3. And it's like that old country song, look how far we had to go to get come to get back where we started from. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. And so then Jonah goes. And our, our time's running, so I want to kind of bring this to a close. Jonah goes. He brings the shortest sermon in history. Forty days and you're done. The end. Um, and then he goes to the side of the hill to kind of watch for a firework show because that's what he expected. But what happens Surprise, a surprise, the king of Nineveh, the arch enemy of the northern and the southern kingdom, right? let's put that in perspective here, the king of Nineveh um, calls for a national fast, a national day of repentance. From the greatest to the least, even the sheep, wearing sackcloth and ashes. And the answer is, and the, the reason why is, who knows, maybe Yahweh will relent and have compassion on us. Maybe God will relent and have compassion. That's Joel 2 language. That's Exodus 34 language. It's covenantal language. It's house language. It's God's people language. And here the Ninevites are using God's covenantal language for their own selves, related to their own salvation. And guess what God does? What His propensity is to do to those who turn to Him in repentance. That's what the minor prophets set us up for. It's what makes Jonah so, frankly, so striking is that the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom never did that kind of shoving 
They're kind of returning to the Lord. And judgment fell on them. But here are the Ninevites doing it. That's the great contrast that we have in the Minor Prophets. Here are the Goyim. Here are the nations. And here they are turning to the Lord. And He's showing them His compassion because that's how He's hardwired. That's His propensity. That's His, that's his character. And Jonah's upset. I think it was you, David, who mentioned this the other night about this being an elder brother moment. And um, from the parable of the prodigal son, I actually think that's very illustrative here. Because Jonah is sitting on the side of the hill. He's waiting to see the fireworks show. And he gets extremely angry at God. And he says, isn't this the reason why I left? By the way, we have to wait, wait till chapter 4 to find out really what, what the motivation for Jonah to leave was. And, and he says, isn't this the reason why I left and fled to Tarshish? Well, why is that, Jonah? Because you're merciful, you're gracious, and you're kind. That's who you are. And I fled to the far country because of it. (laughs) It's the father coming out from the banquet hall saying, why aren't you coming in, son? And the answer is, well, I've been with you this whole time. You never did anything like this for me. Throwing a little bit of a fit, right? Why? Um, I've loved you. I've done what you've asked. And here you are throwing a party for this profligate son of yours. It is that kind of moment, isn't it? The kind of detention that we feel when God showers His grace out on those who turn to Him in in repentance. And this is how it ends. God says to him after this showdown under the sun, well, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And he says, yes, I'm, I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you are concerned about this little bush that grew up and then it dies overnight. And should I not be concerned with Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hands from their left hands and also so many animals? (laughs) What a strange and bizarre way to end a book, right? The way in which I think about it is being in a kind of a theater situation and the credits start rolling before the movie's over. It's like, you know, I need more here. And the more that I think we have is you and I as readers. Because something happens here. We, the, the kind of laughing that we do, and we kind of tease, but here's Jonah swallowed by a whale, and he's, he's pitching a fit, and all these kind of, we, we laugh, and then all of a sudden, by the end of the story, the credits are rolling, and we realize, uh oh, joke's on us. We're Jonah. We're invited into the story, just like the ancient Israelites were, invited into the story to say, hey, are you going to walk in God's ways? Are you going to follow his desires? Are you going to celebrate His costly grace? Or are you going to stand outside? That's the challenge. So within this sort of ethic of liturgy, we have this movement within Jonah, a kind of stark contrast to say, this is God's grace toward His people and His grace toward those who are undeserving. It is His character to be gracious and merciful to those who are, who are undeserving. All right, I think our time has gone. We'll come back next week and wrap up and, um, and we'll go from there.